0: It's been three weeks since our last installment in the Treasure of the Questions series, and and so far we have looked at six questions, six questions that that Jesus asked of different people in Matthew's gospel, and each of them were relevant and important the first time around over 2,000 years ago, and all of them are timeless questions. They're still relevant today, even this morning, 5th of June, 2000 and 16. Here's the list, Andy, if we could have the the first on the screen. Here's a list of some of the questions. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to their life? Why are you so afraid? Then the next ones, do you believe, says Jesus, that I am able to do this? Not that I can do this. I'm able to do this or that I will do it? If any of you, this is a slightly random one, you may recall, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? And then three weeks ago, we looked at this question, why did you doubt? Well, this morning, we come to what could arguably be described as the most important question to date, It was then, it is now. We're actually going to look at two questions. Stephen has introduced the first of those questions, which is a relatively general and safe question. But the second question that we're going to look at is intensely personal and incredibly dangerous. And how we answer them, and particularly how we answer the second one, really matters in our lives, both our present lives and our future lives, because those present lives and future lives will be determined and defined by our responses, particularly to the second question. So if you have a Bible, and I can't tell you what page to turn to because we don't have pew Bibles, we don't have pews. But anyway, let's stand together for the public reading of God's Word, and it's Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 13 to 20. Let's stand together. If you're near someone who's got a Bible or a phone with the Bible on it, nestle up to them and share with them, okay? Let's let's hear God's word. When Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his followers, who do people say the Son of Man is? They answered, some say you're John the Baptist, others that you're Elijah, and still others that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked them, And who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, You're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because no person taught you that. My Father in heaven showed you who I am, so I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the power of death will not be able to defeat it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, The things you don't allow on earth will be the things that God does not allow. And the things you allow on earth will be the things that God allows. And then Jesus warned his followers not to tell anyone he was the Christ. Take a seat. So, who do people today say about Jesus? Say Jesus says. What do they think about? Of Jesus, the people today that we know. You could argue that fewer and fewer people really care who Jesus is. Less and less people are bothered who Jesus is. The connection between Jesus and people today is increasingly tenuous. A couple of weeks ago, a number of newspapers ran front page articles reflecting on the findings coming out of the most recent census. If I can have the next slide up there, Andrew. Granted that these figures I'm about to share with you relate to England and Wales, and I know that the situation in Northern Ireland is different, but they do highlight the increasing drift that there is and detachment from Christianity in the UK and from the Christian story. And so the Guardian headline read, people of no religion outnumber Christians now. It went on to say, the number of people who say they have no religion is rapidly escalating and significantly outweighs the Christian population. The proportion of the population who identify as having no religion has now reached 48.5 percent, this is in 2014, compared to 25 percent in 2011. The number of people in the space of three years who now say, no religion, has doubled. The striking thing is, I'm reading on, the striking thing is the clear sense of the growth of no religion as a proportion of the population. The main driver is people who were brought up with some religion now saying they have none. What we're seeing is an acceleration in the numbers of people not only not practicing their faith on a regular basis, but not even ticking the box. Now, I I realize, and some of you are sitting there thinking this, I realize that figures like that provokes lots of other questions. But as I was thinking about that first question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, who do people say the Son of Man is? it struck me that in today's Western world and culture, it's harder and harder to know who people today think Jesus is. And although that is the growing trend, there are still some people who have an opinion, sometimes a strong opinion about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Here is a a selection of some relatively famous people and what they have said about Jesus. There are no slides to these just at the moment, Andrew. Here's what Mikhail Gorbachev, former leader of the Soviet Union, said about Jesus. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for all mankind. Prince Philip, this is what he said, Jesus might be described as an underprivileged working-class victim of political and religious persecution. That's how Prince Philip has described Jesus. One leading French philosopher and writer said this, Jesus was the greatest religious genius who ever lived. In 2010, Elton John said this, which some people might find slightly offensive, but I'm only trying to illustrate that people today do have a perspective. Here's what Sir Elton John said. I think Jesus was a compassionate, super intelligent gay man who understood human problems. On the cross, he forgave people who crucified him. Jesus wants us to be loving and forgiving. H.G. Wells, who wrote War of the World, said this, I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is essentially the most dominant figure in all history. And in a recent interview with Complex Magazine, and I do have a slide for this, Justin Bieber, I'm so down with the kids. Justin Bieber said this, I just want to honestly live like Jesus. Not be Jesus, I never could. I don't want that to come across weird. Jesus created a pretty awesome template of how to love people and how to be gracious and kind. And if you believe it, he died for our sins. So that's what some people have said about Jesus. The question is, what about the people around these streets? What about your neighbors? What about the person you sit beside and work? the person you go to school or uni with, person you cycle with, run with, socialize with, who do the people you know that you associate with, that you spend time, who do they say Jesus is? Do you know? What's their take? Well, as we look at this a bit closer, and before we get a little more personal, Let's explore these questions as they were first asked in their original context. So if you do have a Bible open, can you please, please hang on to it and, and say share what the person was saying? In Matthew 16 and verse 13, we, we first read about the place where Jesus asked his first question. And, and without going off on too much of a tangent, I do think it's worth making the point that where we ask certain questions, big questions... Where we ask them can influence the answer or someone's willingness to give us an answer. Sometimes choosing the right place to ask the right question is really important. And the place in Matthew 16, as you will note, was Caesarea Philippi, a really interesting location. At one time, it was a bastion of pagan worship to Baal, it then was a center of worship of the Greek god Pan. And then it was an environment of worship to Caesar. And why Jesus brought his disciples here is at one level anybody's guess. Nobody really knows. But at another level, it makes perfect sense because whenever you find yourself in an environment when there are lots of religious choices, lots of options available about who and what to worship, it becomes all the more important that you discover, well, what is the right one? What is the true one? And again, without wandering too much off script, we find ourselves in 21st century Western society, 21st century South Belfast, living, next one please, Andre, in an increasingly pluralistic context where all kinds of religions and gods compete for our attention and compete for our worship, and therefore, in this syncretic environment, which really just means this amalgamation of religions, in that kind of environment, in that kind of context, in that kind of place, in that kind of location, questions about the identity of Jesus become incredibly important and central. So Jesus takes his disciples to this place, and he asks them the first question. Here it is. Who do people say the son of man is? Now, if you look down at the second question, you'll note that he says, who do, people, who do you say I am? So in a sense, simply the question could be, who do people say I am? It's a safe question. The reason it's a safe question is it's a non-threatening question. It's not personal. It's who do others say I am? Clearly, there was quite a bit of speculation going around about who Jesus was and wasn't. Jesus had done a lot. Jesus had said a lot. Jesus had created quite a stir. And so now seemed an appropriate time for Jesus to solicit some feedback. Who are people saying that I am? And the disciples had heard the whispers. They'd listened to the comments. And so together, and that's what the language states, together they all replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, the thing is that none of these suggestions, none of these names were derogatory. They weren't negative. They were actually quite complimentary. And what it did reveal was that to a certain extent, Jesus was still quite popular. John the Baptist, who was John the Baptist? At the end of the day, he was a spokesman for God. Who was Elijah? He was a miracle worker. He was a man of prayer. Who was Jeremiah? He was a powerful preacher. And therefore, in many ways, these answers that people were given, they weren't a million miles off. And I think it's really interesting that Jesus doesn't step in and he doesn't correct them. He doesn't challenge his disciples about what they have heard people say about him. At the end of the day, this was what people were saying. This was the word on the street. Some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're John. Some think you're one of the other prophets. But although they were all good answers, none of them were right. So Jesus pushes a little further, goes a little deeper. Because although what other people think of Jesus and say about him is interesting. Fascinating what Alton John said about Jesus. Intriguing what Justin Bieber said about Jesus. But though it's all interesting and fascinating and arresting, it doesn't really matter. Whenever the crucial issue is, what's your response? What's your response? And so Jesus immediately gets personal. And he asks a very direct and searching question. What about you? He replied. Next one. Who do you say I am? And although there is effectively only one word of a difference, who do people say I am, who do you say I am, that one word makes all the difference in the world. The answer to that question can no longer be found in in looking around. It can no longer be found in listening to others. It's got to be found within, from the heart. This is about what you think. Isolate yourself for a moment. Pretend there's nobody else around you. Who do you say I am? interesting that the, the first question was met with a chorus of voices. Who do people say I am? And they, we read in verse 14, they all replied. That's where it, how it's properly translated. They all replied. Some say this, some say this. But now when Jesus asks the second question, there's just one solitary voice. And for those who are familiar with the gospel stories, it's no great surprise that that one solitary voice is Simon Peter. And he speaks up and he speaks out first. You are the next leg. You are the Christ, Son of the Living. God, it was a bold, it was a daring confession, and in the space of 10 words, it communicated the true identity of Jesus, it clarified, it confirmed who he was in no uncertain terms. You are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel, in the space of 16 chapters, that anyone has unambiguously acknowledged that this is who Jesus actually is. Many, many people had been living for years and then some in expectation, a constant state of anticipation that the promised Messiah, the promised Deliverer, the promised Savior, he would eventually come, that the Christ was going to sort out everything and everyone. He was due to arrive someday in a blaze of glory. Hope was still alive, even despite the passing of time. But no one, no one genuinely thought that this guy this Jesus was that one. For so many reasons. But as Peter steps forward and answers that heart searching question of Jesus, he kneels it. And he grabs the microphone and he says what no one else had publicly ventured to declare you are the Christ. You are our hopes fulfilled. Now, as I've indicated, Messiah meant or means anointed one. And everyone at that time or around that time would have known that there were three anointed ones referred to in the Old Testament. Three types of people, three roles, three positions that in the Old Testament are referred to as anointed by a congregational participation. Don't put the next slide up, whatever you do, Andre. Who are the three people, the three roles, the three positions in the Old Testament that were anointed? King is one. Well done, Dorothea. Priest is two. One more. Prophet. Brilliant. Prophet. You can put it up now. Prophet, priest, and king. 39 times in the Old Testament. The term anointed one is used to describe prophets, priests, and kings, and without getting too bogged down in detail, although this is really important. Let me quickly remind you what each of these anointed people did. What did a prophet do? A prophet showed to others what God was like. The prophet spoke God's words to people. Priests, priests put people in touch with with God. Priests offered up sacrifices that reconnected people to God. And what did kings do? They exercised God's rule. Jesus did all of those. Jesus was all of the above, prophet, priest, and king. He was the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, and now his identity is finally blown. Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus only speaks words that the Father gives him to speak. Jesus, by his own sacrifice, his once and for all sacrifice, reconnects people with God. He offers forgiveness through the shedding of his own blood. In other words, Jesus saves. And he is king, only well, he's not just the king of the Jews as was nailed above him on the cross. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. But in saying all of that, that is jumping way ahead of Matthew 16 in this incident in Caesarea Philippi. Peter had got it absolutely right, but even he at this stage did not get the full weight of his vocal confession. But we do. We need to. We should. You are the Christ, the anointed one who speaks God's words, who sacrificed your life for me, and who's in control of my life. But there was a second part to Peter's seismic confession. You are the Christ, next slide, son of the living God. God. You see, Peter had somehow grasped a deep appreciation for Jesus's unique and special relationship with the Father. You're the Son of God. But did you notice that he added an adjective? You're Son of the living God. You see, Peter was making it clear that God was altogether different from the lifeless idols and the dead gods that so many people were into worshiping, who were into pinning their hopes on. And in a place like Caesarea, Philippi, this in itself was a profound declaration. You, Jesus, are son of the living God. Ten words. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine words. It should say you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ten words. But the content, the awareness, the extent, the depth of Peter's confession is profi- I wonder what the other disciples thought of Peter. Were they relieved he had spoke? Were they, were they nervous for him? Were they lost for words? But if anyone is in any doubt about the importance or bigness of Peter's disclosure, take a look at how Jesus immediately responds. And this is, this is so interesting. How does Jesus immediately respond whenever Peter blurts that out? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus begins with a beatitude, praising Peter for his reply. This is the only time we read of anyone being on the receiving end of a personal blessing from Jesus. Blessed are you, not in itself is major. But notice the next bit. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You see, this was not only about Peter. This insight stemmed from divine revelation rather than human deduction. Peter wasn't smarter than the rest of the disciples. He wasn't better than the rest of the disciples. He wasn't greater than the rest of the disciples or than any of us. It was Father God who led Peter to a correct understanding. Only God can reveal God. How God revealed this to Peter isn't exactly clear from the language, but what is is explicit is that he did. And many of us sit here this morning as recipients of divine revelation. Please hear me again on that. I know that many of you sit here this morning as recipients of divine revelation. We have acknowledged who Jesus is as we have engaged with him through word and through witness, as we have encountered him in Scripture via the conviction of the Holy Spirit and via the witness of his other followers. And therefore, we are able to echo Peter's confession and answer what is quite possibly the, next one, please, Andrew, the most important simple question that has ever been asked and continues to be asked by the most important person who ever walked planet Earth. Who? The you. Say I am. And if you're here this morning and and you've never offered or uttered those words, those bold words, those daring words, those dangerous words, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God of the living God can I if you've never reached a place in your life where you've uttered those words for yourself can I encourage you to do it this morning with integrity and I realize if that's you 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 may hesitate not because you necessarily doubt the truth of those words, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God, but because whenever you speak those words, you can no longer ignore the implications of those words. Everything changes. Nothing is ever the same again. And as I bring this to an end this morning, and I know for some of you, you're sitting there thinking, David, you haven't dealt with verses 18 to 20. You haven't dealt with the tricky verses. It was never my intention. I wanted to stick with our question. And so let me now speak just for the last few seconds to those of us who have confessed Jesus as the Christ and the son of the living God. And for some of us, we did it years ago. Long, long time ago. And I honestly believe it's something that we need to confess and we need to declare and we need to boldly say over and over again. Because do you know why? We don't always live in the light of its full implications. Just take a look at Peter. This this fascinates me, intrigues me. Peter had just made this incredible confession. You're Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. Calls him rock. Only oh, you'll build my church. And then you look down at verse 23. And you find Peter arguing with Jesus and ending up being called Satan. See, Peter, Peter didn't always get it right. Peter falls asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane whenever Jesus needed him so badly. Peter denied he ever knew Jesus at the most critical moment in Jesus' life. But through it all, and as a result of his confession, He was being shaped and he was being formed and he was being molded. It didn't mean he always got it right. But he was being shaped and he was being formed just like you are, just like I am. Shaped, formed, molded into the rock that Jesus knew him to be. And as we all know, Peter was ultimately crucified for following and loving Jesus. And for some of us this morning, we haven't exactly got it right recently some of us here this morning here, are Christian. We haven't got it right this week. And we need to hear that question again from Jesus. Who do you say I am? And we need to reply. You are the Christ. Son of the living God. Recommit to living in light of it and just realizing how blessed we are to be able to affirm that.